Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Ye Yahuwah from the heavens, praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his hosts. Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise ye him, all the stars of light. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahuwah, for he commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which shall not pass. Hallelujah. From the earth, ye dragons all and all deeps. Fire, hail and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars. Beast and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl. Kings of the earth and all people. Princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of Yahuwah, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven. He also exalts the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, even of the children of Yasharel, a people near unto him. Hallelujah. Psalms 148. I'm Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington, and we say Shabbat Shalom to all our listeners. We hope you enjoy our weekly podcast as we study Yah's Torah, his statutes, his commandments, and other principles in the Bible. So, do you have your Bibles ready? Your notebook, your computer, your tablet, whatever you need to join us as we begin our study. Pastor, what is in store for us today? Okay, we're going to continue where we left off last week. Uh, we were talking about the mirror of sacrifice, and we're going to deal with another segment of that mirror of sacrifice. And to get started, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 19. And I want to look at a couple of verses there. Now here it says in Revelation 19, considering verses 7 and 8, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the linen for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And what we were talking about was the labor, and we were showing the connection between the sacrificial offering and a marriage. So this portion is a continuation of the, of the mirror of sacrifice. Now here we read that Yeshua's bride, his assembly has made herself ready and she has been granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. If Yeshua's bride has made herself ready, then what did she do to become ready? In order to see how she made herself ready, let us go back to the lessons of the labor in Exodus chapter 38. And here we want to see if she, if his bride is ready, how did she make herself ready? Okay, here in the 38th chapter, and we're still considering Exodus 38, and also we're looking at verse number 8, Exodus 38, 8. And here it reads, it says, and he made the labor of brass and the foot of it of brass of the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So we are told that the labor was constructed out of looking glasses of the women. What we, what we are experiencing in this passage is the gifts of the women contributed to the sanctuary. Since the looking glasses were made of polished brass of which one could see oneself as to how one would look. 
then could not we say that when the priests approached the exterior of the labor, it was reflective of two basic things. <clears throat> Let us look at these two basic things. The first basic thing we see had to do with the looking into a mirror of which we would refer to as the mirror's meaning. Okay, so what is the meaning of the mirror? mirror the mirror's meaning. When one look into the exterior of the labor and see one's reflection, what was one experiencing? In the epistle of James, he tells us what we are experiencing when we look in a looking glass. You see, when they took those looking glasses and they made that labor on the outside, no doubt it appeared like a looking glass that you could see into it. And then by so doing, it acted as a mirror. So what is the purpose of a mirror? So we turn into the first chapter of the book of James, the epistle of James, chapter 1. And here in epistle of James, chapter 1, we want to see about what this looking glass is about. Here in the 25th verse of the first chapter of the general epistle of James, it says, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. So here James is saying, when we look at into the perfect law of liberty and continue with therein. So in other words, what he's bringing out is the fact that this perfect law is, a re, is being represented by the mirror. So James says, whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Okay, so to look into the perfect law of liberty is like, looking into a mirror and seeing one's reflection. So it is the law that we are looking into, okay? Now, he says to us that this perfect law uh, of liberty, and so when we look at that perfect law of liberty, we also want to look in the same book of James and see what else they call this perfect law of liberty. And that's in the book of James, chapter 2 and verse 8. And it says, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. So in other words, when we look into the labor, into that mirror, it acts as a law. And the law is like, and the, that mirror acts as a law. And the law is dealing with the commandments. Now, what commandments are is it talking about? Well, James goes on to point out what this law is talking about, because when we read in James chapter 2 and verse 8, it calls this perfect law, it also refers to it as a royal law. And it says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. And then it goes on further to say in verse 9, But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Verse 10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet shall offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, what law is this referring to? Well, in verse 11, it lets us know. It says, For he that saith, Do not commit adultery, also said also, Do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So what he's speaking about is the Ten Commandment Law, of which we refer to as the Decalogue. It has ten precepts. So when they looked into that mirror, they were looking into the law to see what the requirements of the law demanded. So when we understand that when James says, he that looketh into the perfect law and do what the law says, he says, 
that they are not forgetful hearers, but they remember how they looked in the mirror. And when we do what he says do, that means that we are walking in the way that he wants us to. But if we look in the perfect law of liberty and see that we have been doing some sin, then we need to understand that there are some consequences for that. Now here James points out to us that the mirror is representative of the perfect law of liberty. Moreover, he says in another passage of what we just read concerning the perfect law of liberty, he calls it the royal law according to the scriptures. Now, why is it called a royal law? Well, it's called the royal law because we consider Yehoah our king. You remember the ancient Israel? Uh, he was their king until they chose Saul. He was their king. And Yeshua, his son, is the prince. And since the father is royal, and since the son is royal, then from them come a royal law. So this royal law comes from the royal family. This royal law and the law of liberty are one and the same. Therefore, if this law is represented by a mirror, then it is a law which helps us to see what it is that is causing us to be sinful. Here, James is referring to the law of the commandments found in the Decalogue. And so when we look at that Decalogue and we follow what it's saying, then the mirror is showing us we are walking correctly. But if we look in that law and we see that we are not walking correctly or looking co correctly, then we need to straighten up. So here we can see that the mirror has been designed by Yehoah for his people to look into the mirror of his law to see wherein do they err. If we want to know how we err, we have to look into the mirror. Just like in the morning, if we want to see how we look, we look into the mirror. And as we look into the mirror, we can see where we need to be fixed up at. However, the law cannot change us. It can only point out our sinful flaws and the defects in our life. That's, that's what a mirror is for. You can stand in the bathroom mirror and look at it all day. It would never do anything for you but point out the areas that you need to fix yourself up. Now, this brings us to our next basic thing about the exterior of, of the labor. Now, remember that the labor was made out of brass, and brass represents suffering, pain, and death. And, and it points out a twofold aspect. Let's look at these two aspects. The first aspect is that of the suffering, pain, and death of our Redeemer. We can see in the brazen mirror that when Yah's law was broken, someone has to suffer pain and die for the abortion of the law. When we see that we do not measure up to Yah's standard of the law, then our Messiah died in our place to give us his life of righteousness and take our life of sinfulness. Now that we see the righteousness life of Yeshua being reflected in his crucifixion and death and seeing ourselves as being sinful and in need of cleansing, the outside of the labor acted as a mirror, but it also points us to that which was on the inside of the labor. You see, when I approach the labor, what do I see? I see the law, and the law is telling me I have sinned. And then when I see that brazen mirror, which represents suffering, I see that because I have broken his law, I now need the Savior in order to atone for me. But that is only reflected in the mirror. And as I pointed out earlier, the mirror cannot do anything for us. It can point us to Yeshua. It can point us out our sins. It can point out 
our need of a Savior, but he cannot do anything for us but point us to the right sources. Let us now consider our next basic thing, and that is not only that the exterior pointed out the law and the crucifixion, but it was also an indication as to what was inside the labor. So we want to see what was inside that labor to be able to make the bride ready. What was on the inside of the labor that would help us to be able to be in compliance with the Decalogue? What was on the inside of the labor to help us to walk straight and to be able to have the appearance that Elohim wanted us to have? Now we will examine the inside of the labor, of which contains water. Therefore, we not only have the mirror meaning, but we also have the mirror means. You see, we know what the meaning of the mirror was. The meaning of the mirror was that it shows us the law that points out our sins, and it shows us the Savior in whom we go to in order to get forgiveness of sins. So we looked at the meaning. Now we want to look at the mirror's means. What are the means of attaining what Elohim wants us to attain? We pointed out in our last study that the brazen labor points out to us that we have broken Yah's law and that Yeshua, his son, died for it. Now, when we speak about the mirror means we are concerning ourselves with what prepares us to be the bride of our Messiah. Okay. So we want to turn to uh, Exodus chapter 30. What prepares us to be the bride of our Messiah? All right. And that's found in Exodus chapter 30. And here in the 30th chapter uh, of Exodus, we want to read a few verses, and we want to start with verse number 18, Exodus 30, and we want to start with verse number 18, and hear what it says. Well, we'll start with verse 17, and then uh, we'll read on down. It said, And Jehovah spake unto Mose, saying, Thou shalt also make a labor of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal, and thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto Yehoah. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they die not, and it shall be a statue forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generation. Now, now here we are told in these verses that the water was put in the labor in order for the priest to wash. And some translation may say to put in there in order to bathe, because the word wash and bathe in some instances are e equivalent. We must understand that as well as now, as back then, water was used as a cleansing agent. We are instructed, says the scriptures, According to Isaiah 50, 52, 11, it tells us, to be clean, ye that bear the vessels of Yehoah. So Isaiah is saying in Isaiah chapter 52 and 11, he said, if we are Elohim's vessels, we need to be clean. And he was, and, and Yahuwah was expressing to Moses that when Aaron ministered in the sanctuary or at the altar, they had to be clean. He said, because if they weren't clean, they would die. And it makes sense for them to die because the Bible says that sin is represented uh, by, by, by things being defiled. So if things that are defiled makes one sinful, then it's only natural, even in the physical world, that we must be clean in order that we may be sanctified and holy. So 
he is saying to the priests, when you go in, I want you to watch your hands and your feet. So when you go in, you will be clean because any uncleanness will cause you to die. And this is why in the end of time, when people are going to die, it is because they refuse to be clean. They want to be sinful, which means they want to be dirty. They want to be defiled. They want to be vain. And as a result, he says that if the priest came in defiled, soil or dirty, they would die. So they had to wash to be clean. And once we are clean, then he imparts unto us life. We are told by the Psalmist David about what means one can be cleansed. So let us let us find out how can we be clean. Okay. Let us turn to the 119th division of the Psalms. Psalms 119th division. And here the Psalmist David tells us how we can be clean. And that's in Psalms 119th division. And we're looking at Verse number nine, verse number nine, Psalms 119 and verse number nine says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. So it says, if we want to cleanse our ways, he said, then we have to hearken unto his ways. He said, by taking heed thereunto, to according to his word. So his words teach us his ways. So if we are to be cleansed, we are to be cleansed by his word. The word does the cleansing. So here we have the means of cleansing. We are cleansed by Yahweh's word. Okay, now we want to turn, we want to turn to the book of Ephesians. So we found out we are cleansed by the word. Okay, so we want to look at Ephesians, and in the book of Ephesians, we want to look at chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and we want to consider verses 25 and 26, okay? So the psalmist David has already pointed out to us that if we are to be cleansed, it is by the word. Now notice what Paul says here. In verse number 25 of the fifth chapter of his epistle, he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as the Messiah also loved the assembly and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So here Paul is saying, in addition to what David is saying, that he cleanses church with the washing of water, which is the word. So here we have the means of cleansing and we are cleansed by Yah's word. And Paul is verifying the fact that when he cleanses the church, he is cleansing by the word. So when we look at the water, the water is equivalent to the word. It's the cleansing agent. The word is the cleansing agent for his people. This is why every day we must get into the word to make sure that the word can do its cleansing. And when we wash with the word, it cleanses us on the outside. When we drink his word, it cleanses us on the inside. So when the inside and the outside are being cleansed together, it makes us those pure vessels. And when we become his pure vessels, then... And only then can he put the full manifestation of his Holy Spirit. Consequently, when we appropriate Yah's word to our life, it cleanses like water. However, we discussed that when Yeshua attended the wedding in Cana of Galilee, we stated that he said to Mary, his mother, mine hour is not yet come. So let's, let's look at that. Let's look at that again, because what we are finding in a wedding is usually uh, that they have what you call wine, okay? And so we want to look at that wine. And so we want to turn to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Okay, now here in verse number 4, it says, at the latter part, it said, 
my hour is not yet come. That's what he told Mary. See, Mary said, you know, this wedding is out of wine, she told her son. And, and the son said, my hour is not yet come. This was his response to her when she said they have no wine. So here is an apparent association between his crucifixion and his marriage to his bride. Is a, is a bride is, a, is the assembly of which we call his church. When he said his hour has, hasn't come, it would also be understood to me that his marriage to his bride hadn't come yet. In other words, I'm not ready to marry my bride yet. Not only the fact that they ran out of wine and they don't have, a, have enough, he said, but my hour has not come. What hour was it? He was talking about his marriage hour because we just read in Ephesians, he said he's going to cleanse his church with the washing of water. And he relates in Ephesians about a husband and a wife. He is showing that he's married to his people. Moreover, we also pointed out that the stone water pots, which were filled with water, he changed the water into wine. And we noticed that in verse number nine of John chapter two, Verse 9 says, and when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not which it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, and the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. In other words, he called the bridegroom because he wanted to commend the bridegroom. He said, because you saved the best wine for last. When well, time that Yeshua changes something into wine, then that is the best. Now, these stone water pots, in a way, acted as a laver, and the water was put in them like they also put into the laver. Once having put the water in the laver, the water was changed into wine, and the wedding, in very much the same way, had the water in the laver of the sanctuary. Just as Yeshua turned water into wine, the priest washing off the blood of the sacrifice colored the water red like wine. Let us ask this question. How does water cleanse? How does it cleanse? Let us probe into this question. When Yah's people in days of old confessed their sins over the animal's sacrifice and cut his throat, to get his blood, then vicariously, the sacrificial animal of innocence gave its life to the repentant, and the repentant gave his life to the animal sacrifice. In such an exchange as this, we call this the atonement. When the repentant left the sanctuary after offering his sacrifice, the animal sacrifice carried away the sinful life of the repentant, and the repentant carried away the pure life of the sacrifice. Therefore, when the priest washed away the sinful blood of the sacrificial animal, it colored the water in the laver red like wine. When we consider Yeshua, when we come to Yeshua and confess our sin, then our sinful life is laid on him. He gives us his righteous life in exchange for our unrighteousness. In this exchange, we are atoned for. His righteous life justifies ours by his imputed righteousness. And as we continue to walk with him daily, he sanctifies us by his imparted righteousness. In exchange for our vile lives, for his virtuous life, he takes our life of transgression and washes it away by the water of his word. And the blood in the labor is the labor water represents our sinful life of which we have given to Yeshua our sacrifice. When Yeshua said at the wedding of Cana, that his hour hadn't come, we discover 
that he was speaking in reference to the hour of his crucifixion. So what was it about his crucifixion that would tie in to a marriage ceremony? When we observe the marriage ceremony, the crucifixion, and the bloody water in the labor, we have the comparison of the following. Okay, now when we look at the wedding in Cana, in the wedding, what did they have? They had water and wine. They had the stone water pots, and they had the labor, which was a labor, and in there was, at the wedding, they had the stone water pots, and then they had the water, and the water was changed to wine. So, 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 so we see they had the water and the wine. Now let us turn to the 19th chapter of the, of the gospel, a gospel of John, that is. In the 19th chapter, and we're going to look at verse 34. 1934 says this. It says, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced the side, talking about Yeshua's side, and forthwith came forth out blood and water. So just like at the wedding they had the water and the wine, now at the crucifixion, when that spear was put in his side, in his side, out came water and blood. Okay, now let us turn to Second Chronicles. Let's turn to Second Chronicles. And here in Second Chronicles, we want to look at chapter number four. Okay, Second Chronicles chapter four, and we want to look at verse number six. Second Chronicles 4, 6. Now here the Bible says, he made also 10 labors. This is talking about Solomon's temple when he made the sanctuary. Just like Moses had to tend in the wilderness, Solomon also built a sanctuary with the same articles of furniture. And he made also 10 labors and put uh, five on the right hand and five on the left to wash in them such things as they offered for the burnt offering, they washed in them. But the sea was for the priests to wash in. So what we see here, they had a, 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 a big container called a sea, and the priests washed in that. But the, but the, the, the other ten labors, they washed the blood of the sacrifice off. So they had water, and then they had the blood of the sacrifice. So... The labor had water and blood, just like the crucifixion had water and blood, and also the wedding had water and blood. So what we have here is water, wine, and blood. And as we pointed out, water represents Yahuwah's word. The wine represents the blood of Yeshua. And the blood represents the life of purity. So what we also want to hasten on to point out is that when Mary said to her son, Yeshua, they have no wine. Why was it so important that they have wine at a wedding? Wine was both a symbol of prosperity and joy. So to run out of wine meant one would be running out of prosperity and joy. You see, in a wedding, if you ran out of wine, you were embarrassed because people would say they really didn't have enough money to have a wedding. So why would they have it if they ran out of wine? So that was quite embarrassing. So this is why Mary was saying they run out of wine. They would have been embarrassed if Yeshua hadn't probably been there. So let, let us look at a few texts. The first text we're going to look at is the wine of prosperity, the wine of prosperity. And in dealing with the wine of prosperity, we want to go to the uh, book of Genesis. And here in Genesis, we want to go to chapter 27. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 27. And in the 27th chapter of Genesis, we want to look at verse 28. Genesis, 7, Genesis 20, 27 and verse 28. And here's what it says. <clears throat> it said, Therefore... Elohim, give thee of the dew of heaven, 
and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. So he said he's going to give them plenty of corn and wine. So a part of the prosperity and the blessings was to have plenty of wine. Because when you have plenty of wine, you had prosperity. Now in the same chapter in verse 37, notice what it says. <clears throat> it said, And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy Adonai, or I have made him thy Lord, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants. And with corn and wine have I sustained him. So it is saying here, one of the blessings of prosperity, again, is pointing out, was, was, was wine. Okay, now let us turn to the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, we want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read in verse number 13, it says, <clears throat> he says here in Deuteronomy 7.13, and he will love thee, talking about Elohim, and bless thee <clears throat> and multiply thee. And when he talk about mu multiplication, he's talking about blessings. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land, thy corn and thy wine. So again, wine is a part of the symbols of prosperity. So we want to be very clear that when they were running out of wine, they were running out of prosperity. Now let us turn to the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, we want to look at chapter 1. In verse 7, it says, And they gave him drink in vessels of gold, <clears throat> the vessels being diverse one from another. And notice what the next, next, next phrase said. It said, And royal wine in, in abundance. He said, royal wine in abundance. So here again, we see that a part of the Persian Empire was prosperity. They had what you call wine. Okay, let us look at one more text found in the, in the book of Amos. Now let's look into the book of Amos. And we want to look, just look at one more text dealing with prosperity as it comes to dealing with, with the wine. Okay, we want to look at Amos, and in Amos, we want to look at the ninth chapter of Amos, and we want to look at verse number 14. And notice what it says. He said, And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards, and drink the wine thereof. In other words, he says, after I bring you out of captivity, I'm going to give you your prosperity back. And a part of that prosperity is going to be wine. So we see wine represents uh, what we call prosperity. Now, let us close with this. Let, let us find, we looked at the wine of prosperity. Now, wine also represented joy. Joy, Okay. So when we talk about wine, we are talking about joy. So wine represents joy. So when they were running out of wine, what Yeshua's mother was saying, Yeshua, they are running out of their joy. You know, and oftentimes when you get married, sometimes your joy goes down. But if you turn it over to the word and keep the word in your life, Elohim can take that watery situation and turn it into a sweet wine again. So your marriage relationship really doesn't have to wane. It can get sweeter and sweeter. Matter of fact, even Yeshua said that the older wine is better than the new wine because the older the wine, the sweeter it is. And so he gave his wine last to let us know that marriage may start off one way, but it should end sweeter than it, it began because Yeshua has been in it. Now notice what it says in Psalms uh, Division 51 the 51st division of the Psalms, and we're looking at verse number 12. Here it says, here it says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. So the psalmist David saying, Restore unto me the joy of salvation. In other words, David is saying that salvation is a joy. It is a great joy. Why is it a joy? Let us turn in the same book of Psalms to 104th division. 
Psalms 104 division. Psalms 104, and we're looking at verse number 15. And here it says in Psalms 104 and verse 15, it says, And wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthen man's heart. But the first part of the verse says, And wine that maketh glad the heart of man. So at a marriage, if they wanted to be glad, they drank the wine. So he's saying, uh, David's saying, salvation is a joy. And if it's a joy, where is that joy coming from? He said, the wine that maketh the heart glad of man. So it makes his heart glad. That's the wine. Now let us turn to uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 53. In other words, we're showing that when you have uh, uh, a joyous when you have a marriage, you want to have a joyous situation, and that joy is to have some wine. Now, here in the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah, starting with verse 10, it says, Yet it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of Yahuwah shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the trivial of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquity. And what we notice in these verses here, he said that he was bruised. He was, uh, Yahuwah was he was he 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 was saying that he was pleased that his son was bruised. Why was he pleased? He said, because he hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. So the purpose for him sending his son was to make him an offering for our sins. And so when he made him an offering for our sin, that meant that we could be saved. That's why he was pleased. He was pleased that he can reconcile us back to himself by the death of his son. And he says, uh, uh, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure, in verse 10, of Yahuwah shall prosper in his hand. And then he goes on to say, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. When he saw his son dying for us, he was satisfied because he knew that the redemption was not in vain, he could now save his people. So the application of the blood and the water cleanses the life of sin. And when this is done for the believer individually and for the body of believers collectively, which is the bride of our bridegroom, who is our Messiah, she is cleansed. When, the, when we use the blood to cleanse us of our sin and the water to wash away our sin, he cleanses his bride. When Adam and Eve were united in matrimony, Adam said of his wife, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It is at the crucifixion of our Messiah that he could say, that after nearly 4,000 years of transgression, for the first time in the history that someone could say of one's wife, she is blood of my blood and life of my life. She shall be called his wife because she was the mother of all living. The assembly of his people has made herself ready by the blood and the water of the bridegroom. Now that we have examined the mirror of sacrifice, let us next week turn our attention to the mirror of spirituality. But it was took the blood and the water of Yeshua to be able to atone for us. Father in heaven, we ask that you would appropriate in our lives the blood and the water that we can be a part of your bride who is clean and white like the linen, which is the righteousness of your son, and be ready when he does come. 
in Yeshua's name. We do ask it, and for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen and amen. 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 So the wine, the water, the labor, they all together represent uh, Yahuwah and have parts with dealing with the cleansing of his people. Yeah, that's what you call the marriage. Yes, correctly. And all of when that she, is tied to the marriage. Mm-hmm. So when they had the blood, the water, and the wine, and all of that, that contributed to when he got married to his bride, she was clean. Because in order to get to be his bride, you had to come through the blood and the water. And when you did that, you made yourself a part of the bridegroom. Okay. Excellent. Up next is Let's Talk About That. Well, in today's topic, uh, let's talk about that. We kind of want to expound on, we had a request to... Uh, talk about the apocrypha books part two so today we want to deal with uh kind of talk about the apocrypha books part two so if you have your bibles if you want to turn with me into second timothy verse chapter 2 verse 15 second timothy chapter 2 verse 15 and if you're familiar you've been listening to our podcast when i first started out this was one scripture that i would constantly close out the show with and i think at some time i'm going to bring it back so, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, if you read with me, and it reads, Study to show yourself approved unto Elohim, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Yahuwah wants us to study. And I think a lot of people, we don't do our our due diligence and study the scriptures like we ought to. I think we depend on others to uh, teach us the scriptures rather than trying to read and understand for ourselves. So when it comes to the Apocrypha books, should we not study and read that for ourselves? Because I know you, you talked about it last week that we were talking about how they, these books were taken out of the Bible because some of them was in the 1611 King James Bible. You wonder about that? You can go look it up. They were there. And then after a certain point around the late 1800s, they were taken out. So, Pastor, you was talking last week when you said that, you know, we should have a choice. Basically, we should be able to read and understand for ourselves whether these books are valid or not. Yeah. <clears throat> what we're looking at is that <clears throat> so often people tell us, not to read something and automatically when someone tells you not to read something, then that heightens your curiosity. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it creates a desire to want to read it. Now you must understand that if people who have read it, tell you not to read it, Mm. then why are they telling you to do something that they did? They didn't do. So they're telling you not to read them, but yet they read it. So I think one of the marks of a mature Christian is that they can read for themselves and discern for themselves. Mm -hmm. And as they read and discern for themselves, then they can decide whether should I indulge in this or should I not? Now, one of the things that we are up against is, is the fact is that the reason why a lot of people have not read it is because the King James Bible has basically been the only Bible that we have had to read. And as a result of reading it, we figure that every other Bible or anything that was not included in that Bible was taboo. Mm-hmm. And, and this is why when the Catholics first started off, they had what you call the Douay Bible, and the apocryphal books were in those in that Bible, but they removed them. Mm. So wouldn't it raise a red flag? Why would they remove some books that was a part of the very Bible they put out? Exactly. So I would think that you would want to read it and compare it to the truth that you do have. And this is all we can do with truth, as is, as it is said, study to show thyself approval. A workman needed not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of the truth. In other words, if I find truth in a donkey's mouth, it's still truth. It doesn't make a difference. 
But if I find error, even in what we call truth, it's still untrue. So I'm of the school that if you read the King James Bible, and I would suggest very strongly that you read the King James Bible because it does have a solid foundation to it. So when you read the apocryphal books, you have something to compare it with. What does apocrypha mean? It means hidden books. Why would you have had had the books? Why not let everybody who is mature enough to read these books and to get an understanding of them? And if they see that it has credence, fine. If it doesn't have credence, then I would say scrap it. But by all means, read it and see what truth you can get out of it. I've gotten a lot of truth out of those particular books. I can't say every book has contributed to me the type of truth that I've gotten from some, but uh, many of them has given me a lot more truth and understanding, even of the King James Bible that I constantly read. Yeah. And to, uh, before we close out, I just wanted to say, I know for me personally, reading the books when knowing they were taken out, it created a curiosity for me, like, okay, what is so much in here that they didn't want me to learn? And same thing with the slave Bible. You know, they took out a lot of passages in the slave Bible and gave them to the slaves. What is it? And I think we all should ask ourselves this question. What is it in these books that they want to hide from us or they don't want us to know? So, Pastor, can you take us to the throne in prayer before we close out this podcast? Our loving Father, again, we thank you so much that we are able to get back and to be able to talk about your word. And as we deal with the apocryphal books, those who are interesting, that they may discover truths, O Heavenly Father, that will embellish them and help them to be better for thee. Continue to add the water of the word to our lives. And when we take the water of the word in our lives, take it and change it into the sweet wine of prosperity and joy, that we can be able to be the bride prepared, that when you do come, we can meet you in peace. Is our prayer in Yeshua's name, and for his dear sake, I do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Up next. I'm Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is the Pastor Richard Washington, and we are the Science of the Covenant. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. May Yahuwah bless and keep you. Until next week, Shalom.